Easter, I was asking the question, is Christianity inherently joyful? And I preached on that at Easter time. I wanted to know if it was inherently joy-producing, joy-giving, and joyful, if joy was of the essence of Christianity. And this year, I've been asking, is hope something that is a constitutive aspect of Christianity? Which, by that I mean, is it something that constitutes the real thing? That you don't have real Christianity without hope? Is it possible to have such a thing? I'm not asking whether or not all Christians are hopeful people, because obviously we're not. Clearly not everyone is a hopeful person naturally. Not all churches necessarily exude hopefulness in the world. I'm asking about the gospel message itself. Is it truly of the essence such that a hopeless Christian uh, would be an oxymoron? I think this is an important concept to explore uh, because if you just watch the news or you just fish around on social media a lot, you'll see that the world needs a lot of hope right now, doesn't it? And you don't necessarily get hope from watching the news or from scrolling through your social media. And any kind of hope you might come across, actually, you're just hoping for a little humor to lighten the mood, right? (laughs) Everything's so depressing. You're like, tell me a joke so we can laugh about it all in our misery. It's all, it offers kind of empty hopes, you know, maybe the next leader or the next legislation or the next thing will help. I don't think we get any natural hope from the world. Though there is certainly, you know, naturally optimistic people, and that's also not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about optimism. Some people, by disposition or personality, are just naturally given to optimism, just like others are naturally given to pessimism. And you know who you are, and you know who those other people are. They annoy you if they are overly optimistic when you're pessimistic. So I'd like to begin, I think it's a timely thing to think about and to explore. As I was exploring this, though, I realized that I um, had too much material for a single sermon. I had enough for about three lectures, and I said, okay, I'm going to have to distill this down uh, for a sermon, so I'll only be able to give a kind of introductory uh, um, sermon, some introductory comments on this idea, and then hope, encourage you to explore further. There um, are handouts with further exploration for the community groups. We'll be doing that, uh, digging into the sermon later as well. So, uh, when the word hope is used in the modern sense, when people kind of say, use the word hope, they often mean a feeling of expectation or a desire for a particular thing to happen. But it's more of a wish, uh, a longing, like I hope that I'll be healthy for most of my life, or I hope I'll have enough money to pay my bills. I hope I'll graduate in a couple weeks. Um, I hope I'll be able to get a job afterwards. I was hoping that the Falcons were going to win the Super Bowl, but again, this is all wish. This is longing, but it may not necessarily come true because it's not rooted in any particular deep truth. It's just what I would like to see happen. In the Bible, however, the word hope is used differently. There, it's very closely connected with words like faith and trust. It is more of a confident expectation of something good, particularly with reference to salvation. 
In the Bible, hope is used as a kind of confident trust in God. What do we know about God? It's, it's a trust in His character. We know God to be a certain way so that we can truly hope He will act in accordance with that character. God has also said things in His Word. We put our hope in His Word that what He says is true about the world, about ourselves. We put our hope in the actions of God, especially the actions of God in Christ to redeem the world, to rescue it. And we put our hope in the promises of God, trusting that God does not deceive us and has the power to accomplish what He promises. Jürgen Moltmann, who's a famous 20th century theologian, defines hope as anticipated joy. And he contrasts that with anxiety, which he says is anticipated terror. So hope is anticipated joy. Therefore, it's looking forward to something good, which is why we regard hope as a generally good thing, as opposed to anxiety, which anticipates disaster or terror. So what characterizes your life right now? Maybe a bad question to ask when finals week is upon us. Um, What characterizes your life in general? Um, What characterizes your family's atmosphere and outlook? Um, I was thinking about, you know, watching the news and how it seems like people that watch the news a lot are very depressing. Depressed and depressing uh, people uh, to be around. I don't know if it says something about the news or what, but the way we look for that kind of bad news information, um, it cultivates anxiety. Whereas the gospel, I want to argue, cultivates joy, uh, hope inherently. My basic point is going to be that hope applies some vision of the future to the present. Hope applies some vision of the future to the present. The question is, is it a made-up future, something I've just created in my own mind, a wish, or is it something that has been promised to us? Well, that raises the question, um, what is the promised future in Christianity? That is to say, what is the Christian hope? Is Christian hope simply pie in the sky when you die, if you try? Um, that was pretty good. I like that. You know, actually, pie in the sky when you die, if you try. All right, I can at least claim half of that. <clears throat> I think that is not true. That is not the case. In fact, so let's ask ourselves the question, do Christians simply believe merely in sort of hope beyond death, or is there something more, something richer, something more specific? In Second Peter chapter 3, we read this. According to His promise, God's promise, we said we hope in the promises of God, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Then I'm going to read another passage that uses that same phrase about new heavens and new earth. And I understand that to be a kind of Jewish or biblical idiom for referring to a renewed cosmos, a restored world. When we look to the book of Revelation in chapter 21, this is amazing and wonderful passage, the first five verses of Revelation 21. Looking into the future, the, the writer says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I, Paul's there. I understand this to be kind of a metaphorical way of speaking. It's not saying there's no water in the new creation, um, but perhaps a reference to there being no more evil because 
Many times evil creatures come up out of the sea in these apocalyptic visions. No more evil. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. If you pause there, there's a big emphasis in those few lines on God being with us, us having access to the presence of God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Trustworthy. We hope in what is trustworthy. Here we see a vision of the Christian hope, a place where there's no more mourning, crying, pain, or death anymore, and where God's presence is with us in a restored, renewed cosmos. Again, in the book of Revelation, it speaks of a time in the future, Revelation eleven fifteen, when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? And he shall reign forever and ever. This is where this comes from. <clears throat> so there's, at some point, this would be true. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of Christ. <clears throat> you notice this is a very earthy type hope. It is not merely about life, at, life beyond death, but about a full rescue, a full restoration of the cosmos. If it's not that, if Christian hope is not that, then it's sort of like sin and Satan win in some way. That God had this good creation project that He approved, that He likes. Sin and Satan get it off track, and God is only able to rescue a few mere souls from the uh, garbage heap. But that is not the vision. The physical resurrection of Jesus reaffirms God's love and commitment to the physical world He made And it implies that death will not get the last word on his creation or on human lives. Instead, he intends to rescue it all, to restore it all, that there will be a renewed world where resurrected, restored human beings who have trusted in him, who have believed the message, will live in his presence forever. Pastor Tim Keller writes that our Christian hope is that we are going to live with Christ in a new earth where there is not only no more death, but where life is what it was always meant to be. See, the resurrection of Jesus promises life eternal, not a fuzzy, hazy sort of existence floating around on clouds, but a renewed and restored life as God intended it, a renewed world with restored and perfected relationships in God's presence. In the meantime, We believe that as Christians, we are not, we wait for this, but we do not merely wait for it, we work for it. And we work for it in the power of the Spirit, with the wisdom of Jesus, under the grace and love of God, and with one another, working to create foretaste of this ultimate renewal. This is part of what Christian mission, Christian living is all about, waiting and working to see this kingdom Uh, the kingdom of God be realized on earth. 
Why is that? Because we believe that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the world is actually a different place, that something really happened to the world, to the condition, to the whole state of things when Christ rose from the grave, that redemptive things are possible now in a way that they weren't before because the powers have been defeated, the powers that held the world and humanity enslaved, the powers of sin and death and Satan, those have been defeated. And therefore, the Holy Spirit has been given to Christians to empower us to apply the gospel, to apply the victory of Jesus to ourselves and to the world in which we live. As C.S. Lewis has said, Jesus has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Do you believe that as a Christian? Do you believe the world is a fundamentally different place because Jesus is alive? Not that he just sort of ascended spiritually, but has overcome death. Truly, powerfully, physically. There's a nice summary of these themes uh, found in N.T. Wright's work, Surprised by Hope. It's a book I couldn't recommend to you highly enough. Um, in fact, I just re- saw that today it's available on Amazon in ebook form for $1.99. So there's a little plug for that. Um, but listen to how he summarizes the themes I've talked about so far in the following passage. The resurrection of Jesus completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has come, really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. Pause for a second. That is to say, the future, the future new creation has already begun. It has come forward. You can participate in it now. You can have not just life after death, but as Jürgen Moltmann says, life before death in Christ. Continuing, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not just to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. This is actually what the Apostle Paul means in Philippians when he talks about our citizenship being in in heaven, that we're to live as citizens there to bring its life here. That, after all, is also what the Lord's Prayer is about, which I'll refer to in a second. The church is called to a mission of implementing Jesus' resurrection and thereby anticipating the final new creation. Hope for the Christian is not wishful thinking or mere blind optimism. It is a mode of knowing, a mode within which new things are possible. Options are not shut down. New creation can happen. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as in heaven, we are praying for these realities that we've been looking at to exist to be here, here, and now. And if it's possible that those things might actually be true, it might happen, Christianity is inherently hopeful and hope-giving. There is no hopelessness. Well, what else does the Bible say about hope? Uh, Well, I looked at uh, 54 different passages in the New Testament 
that refer to hope in, sub, in some substantive way, but obviously I can only summarize those themes here. You can look at a handful of those in your community groups um, if you attend those later on. So let me summarize some of the themes you find. And this is just New Testament references to hope. It is a biblical theme encompassing the whole Bible. In fact, uh, the New Testament writers often look back to the Old Testament as the source <clears throat> and uh, uh, of the source of their hope. So Matthew, for instance, and the Apostle Paul both cite this passage that in his name the nations will hope. As a way of saying the whole world will hope in, of course, Isaiah uses it to refer to God's name and the, the, the apostles are referring to the name of Jesus himself. In the book of Acts, there are five times in which the Apostle Paul, when he's having to defend himself, says that his whole ministry can be summarized in serving the hope of Israel, that he has a hope in the promises of God, a hope in God that the prophets spoke of beforehand. It's sort of a synecdoche, if you will, that's for you English majors, for the whole of Paul's ministry, the whole of the gospel summarized in this one word, the hope. The hope is what I'm about. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm proclaiming and preaching while I'm enduring all this mess <laughs> is for the hope. The hope of the resurrection, the restored and renewed world. In Romans, there's a passage that says that Abraham, <clears throat> uh, it says, in hope he believed against hope that he should become a father of many nations. Well, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? In hope he believed against hope. <clears throat> what does that mean? I understand it to mean that sometimes what we hope for will go against what's, what feels true or what appears true to our own senses. The Bible says that hope does not disappoint us or put us to shame, that we can rejoice in it, that the purpose of the Scriptures is to encourage hope in us. That's what Paul says in Romans 15, through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I'm sure you know that the Apostle Paul refers a number of times to this triad of Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love as the most important things. An interesting passage in 2 Corinthians says that since we have such a hope in God, we are very bold. What I like about that is it shows that there's a causal relationship between having hope and being moved to action. You see, people who have no hope don't do anything. And therefore, the world doesn't change. But people who do have hope in something act in accordance with that hope and, there, and therefore change their world. That's what makes hope such a powerful thing and why those in power want to keep people from having hope if those powers are evil. <clears throat> I'll say more about that in a little bit. The New Testament also encourages us when we face death or when those we love face death. We don't have to grieve as those who have no hope because we believe in the, as the funeral, funeral liturgy says, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> Again, the New Testament encourages us not to set our hopes on uncertain things like riches, but on certain things like God. <clears throat> Inherently hopeful, if that's true. The book of Titus refers to the return of Jesus as, quote, our blessed hope. 
the thing we're looking forward to the most. So not just dying and going to a better place, but to Jesus returning and making all things new, fully restoring it all. The book of Hebrews says that our hope is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. I'm sure you know the passage in Hebrews 11.1, which connects faith and hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, this text does not say it's the assurance of anything you might happen to hope for. The Falcons did not win the Super Bowl. Somehow, supernaturally, miraculously, they lost. As a pessimist, I knew they were going to lose. <clears throat> so it's not the assurance of anything we might happen to hope for. It's the assurance of things God has promised He will do. <clears throat> Finally, in First Peter, we are told to set our hope fully on something. On what? On the grace that will be brought to you when Christ appears. Set your hope fully on His grace. The longer that I live, I realize more and more how um, fully dependent I am on the mercy and grace of God, that I have no hope without it. God must be gracious and merciful to me. There will be no other hope (laughs) for me or for this world. But if He's promised to be so, then our message is inherently hope-giving. Okay, that's... All of that. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann says that to live, uh, Jürgen Moltmann wrote this book called The Theology of Hope that changed the landscape of systematic theology in a big way. I also commend that one to you. But he says, uh, to live without hope is to cease to live. Hell is hopelessness. And many of you have probably been there. It's no accident that above the entrance to Dante's hell is the inscription, leave behind all hope. You who enter here. But wherever Jesus is, there is life now, abundant life, vigorous life, loved life. There is life before death. So I think, given the things we've said so far, that the answer to my initial inquiry is that yes, the Christian gospel is inherently hopeful and hope giving, it's a constitutive aspect of Christian living and the Christian gospel. And if that's the case, we ought to be, we are to be the ambassadors of hope, agents of hope in this world. What does this hope do? Just a couple of points. First of all, this hope comforts us in death. And if you, when close to you has died, or when you yourself draw near, this will be an immense comfort to know that there is such a thing as a sure and certain hope of the resurrection, that God will raise us up. Jesus says over and over again in John's gospel that I will raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up. They'll get to be a part of God's new thing and His new world. But it doesn't only comfort us in death. It comforts us in life. It encourages us that nothing is hopeless. All things can be restored. All things can be redeemed. So think about your own life and situation for a second. Where do you need this hope today? Is it in dealing with your own self, a particular relationship that you're hopeful about, or perhaps two people that you wish would reconcile? It seems impossible. Nothing is hopeless if Jesus is raised from the dead. 
if he is the sovereign, if his spirit has been given, the spirit that is hovering over the waters in Genesis is empowering people to be new creations and therefore new radically redemptive things are possible. Sometimes we need to look, we might look at ourselves and not think this is so. We get discouraged looking at ourselves. So we might have to take a broader view, that is, look at the lives of others, God's work in other people's lives and draw encouragement from it rather than envy or bitterness, but be encouraged. This is how God is at work. Take the long view that over the course of one's lifetime, over the course of history, God works in a hopeful way. Uh, This hope also motivates us to redemptive action. This is what I was saying earlier about hope being dangerous to evil powers because it causes people to move, to upset the status quo, to work for things to be different. If all we're trying to do is hold on till we get our pie in the sky, when we die if we try, is uh, we won't do much good in the world. We won't try to change evil systems. But you think about... Some of our Christian heroes, like you could name a whole bunch, but William Wilberforce in his battle against the, yeah, human slavery, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., who are propelled by the Christian message to do what they do, to work for a different world, <clears throat> to stand up to evil powers. Lastly, this hope moves us to sacrificial action for others. You see, if our hope is not in our own life having to go well, we'll be willing to sacrifice our comfort and need for the good of others, which makes this a much better hope than anything the world can offer. This is a much better hope than, say, something like evolutionary progress, which is hopeful that things will get better, or enlightenment notions of human progress. It seems to me that these only lead us to have more intelligent ways of blowing ourselves up, more intelligent ways of destroying ourselves or medicating ourselves self-medicating, to tolerate, to deal with life. They don't actually lead to a hope for a better world. Now, Christians, we believe that Christ is the only hope for this world, nothing else, for individuals and for families, for institutions and communities, for nations, for our world. And if that's the case, we are called to be the agents of hope. Because if not us, who will be? Where will the world find any substantive hope if not in Christ, if not in the gospel, if not through encountering His people? The world will be a hopeless place, a depressing place, where people can only self-medicate themselves through it. No, we're called to be His voice of hopeful truth, His hands and feet of redeeming love, bringing healing to the broken places of the world. In that sense, it's like we take hold of the hope and promises of new creation in one hand and the brokenness and hurt and pain and sin in the other hand and be the people who are pulling these things together. The calling of the Christian is to be that agent, the person in between, in prayer. And this is what happens when we pray. When we are praying for something that is broken in need of God's grace, we are taking hold of it and taking hold of the promises of God and pulling them together. This is how God intends to work in the world through us in our prayers, and our service, and our love for other people. And we only do that if we believe God will act, if there is some reason 
to hope. Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious God, would you please open our eyes to see the gospel for all it's worth and to be refreshed, uh, to be refueled, to be given some joy and gladness in the promises you give us, in the power of the Spirit, uh, in the hope, the steadfast, sure hope we have uh, in you and in your promises. Would you give that to every person now as we sing? In Christ's name, amen.